1: Long Final, Ireland's aviation podcast, from Squawk 7000. Paulo, you're very welcome to Squawk Seven Thousand. And in a conversation like this, we will be getting to what you're currently doing now in Kinsale. But I always like to start back with a fairly simple, direct question to a pilot. What was the last time you were in command of an aircraft?
2: That would have been March the twenty sixth, twenty twenty, when we, uh, well when we, when me and the crew flew the Airbus three hundred and twenty from Johannesburg to Cape Town, then Cape Town back to Johannesburg. That was a start, that was the, actually the last flight before South Africa went into lockdown at midnight. And you know, unbeknown to me and the rest of my crew, we didn't know it was our last flight. You no, know, we got back to the parking garage. We all said, okay guys, see you around and we will see you in about a month or two. And that was it, and uh, that was it. And uh, the, yeah, that's when my flying career came to a sort of unplanned sort of halt put it that way.
1: Uh, you say your flying career has come to an end. Have you made the decision then just simply that not to, to revalidate licenses and to go back?
2: That's also a good question, Michael. Uh, this is the first time that my age has worked in my favor. I'm almost 60. And I thought, you know, pilot, you've been flying since you were 13. And I'm still here to talk about it. And I made peace with what I have flown and what I've done in the aviation. And now it's time to, yeah, move to Ireland still be involved with aviation but on the sort of which we'll get to mm. on the aviation cafe side
1: we'll mention it straight away because it's
2: it's worth talking about and that's the flying poet are you yeah. a poet after a few uh, strong coffees and maybe something in the coffee yes i am <laughs> that's a joke <laughs> I know. i'm on the know. flying side not the poet side
1: yeah, and what, what was the inspiration for that? Because uh, if people uh, will have a look at the link, we'll put it up uh, in the program notes uh, to to the website. It, it looks fascinating. There's lots of aviation memorabilia as well as, I'm presuming, good coffee.
2: Yes, it is. The, the well, the history of the of the aviation cafe uh, pub is that I was one of the founder members of an aviation uh, bar, which is still going in Johannesburg to this day. How I Fly is the aviation bar, and that idea came from a very, very close friend of mine, Les Marble, in 1997, who said we should open an aviation bar, which we eventually did in 2001. So besides then flying for the airline, uh, South African Airways, we were running a bar along with uh, myself, Les, Sandy Cervantos, and even, even over there were four of us running the place. And as time progressed to March last year, when my aviation career Came to an end. I thought, wow, Ireland's calling. Time to move to Ireland. My eldest son's been living in Dublin for 17 years. I've been in and out of Ireland since 2005. We have the uh, EU passports, and the whole motivation was to take that idea of the aviation bar in Johannesburg and move it into Ireland, but in a small, tiny cafe, not in a. We had quite a big place in Johannesburg. Mm, mm. But, and that's the whole motivation behind, well, how I got to, uh, to the flying post.
1: And, and managing or maintaining a theme of aviation, uh, because it, it's interesting, it doesn't just attract pilots, it, it attracts people, the general public actually have a bit of a curiosity about things to do with flying, don't they?
2: Absolutely. That's an that's a, that's a extremely valid point there, uh, Michael. A lot of people that aren't really exposed to aviation, especially since after uh, 9-11, Nobody can access the cockpit doors. Mm-hmm. Nobody can talk to the pilots. And so it goes on. Now, what this does is that it brings people into the cafe. They see all the pictures on the wall. Oh, were you a pilot? Yeah. And I, and I you know, give them feedback and they answer me questions. And then what this has done for me in Kinsale is that a lot of sort of pilots from all sorts of uh, spheres of life are calling out the woodwork. And they're approaching the cafe. They're giving me things to hang up. They are. So slowly, as we as people hear of the aviation cafe, the, the flying poet, the paraphernalia, the pictures are just going to increase, and mm-hmm. it's all about what I want to do here. is It's not for myself in aviation. But it's to build Irish aviation history. I need people from Ryanair, Air Lingus, air traffic controllers, whatever you do in aviation, either email me. Send it to the flying poet with the details. I'll put it up on the wall and create a history of Irish aviation.
1: And of course, as you say, once the person is standing there looking at something with a cup of coffee in their hands, they tend to open up and chat. So, I wondered, did you get any work done?
2: Uh, no, don't <laughs> tell my wife that. <laughs> yeah, it is. The distractions are are a lot, and you know, mm-hmm. when we used to, when I used to fly airplanes, that was one of the things we were taught to do is to manage distractions. Yes. And I find in the cafe when I'm sitting down to do some emailing or some admin, you get the distraction. So then you have to work out, okay, which, you know, who's more important? And that's when the customer is the important person. So you put your admin away and you go and meet the customer and you talk. And the next thing you know, you're talking, I'm talking to a person that's involved in aviation. Uh, The one gentleman I met was, I think he's the chairman of the Irish Historical Aviation Society.
1: Oh, yes, indeed. Yeah.
2: So it's, it's amazing the sort of people that are slowly, you know, um, that I'm slowly meeting.
1: Your timing for opening might be, well, it was a tough one, wasn't
2: it? People said, Paolo, what are you doing opening, opening a cafe in the middle of a pandemic? So what I normally say is, listen, guys, I'm not opening it in the middle of a pandemic. I'm opening it towards the end of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And that's the way I'm looking at it, especially with the, you know, with the vaccines that are, that are rolling out so quick in Ireland. It's no good buying something after the pandemic. It's too late. So it's towards the end of the pandemic. And, it, and I've, given myself, I've given myself a few months to find my feet around the whole sort of business thing in Ireland, uh, running a cafe in Ireland. So when the pandemic has gone, or let me rephrase it, when the pandemic is under control
1: mm-hmm.
2: and things are almost back to normal, there won't really be a normal, but things are back to sort of um, normality, then we should we should have ironed out most of the small little snags that comes with a cafe, you
1: know. So it's mostly takeaway is the experience that people have at the moment anyway.
2: Yeah, at the moment, yeah. You walk in, you just take away coffees, uh, uh, have a look at all the paraphernalia on the wall, the photos, the books, the coffee, uh, toasted sandwiches, and then uh, slowly walk out. I use the word slowly <laughs> because the people hang around and ask questions about all sorts of photos on the wall so i'm looking forward to the day when we can um, have indoor dining
1: people can loiter with intent but what's your favorite piece of memorabilia that's currently there
2: the favorite piece also very good question all of it is favorite but i think what sticks out in my it really brings to my attention is the uh, picture of my daughter so it's fairly big picture canvas picture she's now 16 but when she was 11 i put a on the 330 simulator in Johannesburg, so she's in a left-hand seat, getting airborne out of Cape Town. She's uh, holding the sort of side stick in her left hand; her right hand is holding her chin, and it's a good shot of her flying the 330. So, I would say, personally, that's uh, personally that's my my favourite uh, photo. Then I also have the uh, uh, 747-400 photos that when SA shut down the 747-400 fleet. We had a party at High Flyers in Johannesburg. All the guys signed the poster, that the photo, sorry, which is up on the wall. Same with the 737-800 fleet. So there's a few, there's, there's a lot of photos that are mm. interesting, you know, when, you, when, when one pays attention to what's on the wall.
1: Okay, let's go back yeah. a little bit then. We've talked about your last flight and, and I suppose to find out a little bit more about your first flight. You were born in Zambia. Where was the airplane, where was the airport and what were you doing?
2: Yeah, born in Zambia in 1961, and ever since, you know, a very, very, very young age, I was always interested in aircraft. And I grew up in a place called Chingola, and the airfield was Kasompi. Started flying there when I was 13, uh, maybe four hours in a 172, and then I went up to the Cherokee 140, which was a lot easier to land than a 172, being a low wing with a ground effect. And went solo illegally when I was. Just over 15. (laughs) (laughs) I said that illegally when I was 15. and That's where it all started, you know, my aviation career.
1: What was Zambia like in 1961? Uh, You know, if you were born then, you are flying maybe 13 years later or so. um, It it was a country going through an enormous amount of change.
2: It was, and especially in the aviation sector. What what I remember as a kid was the unavailability of avgas. That was the main thing, you know, fuel. There, there would be deliveries to Indola Airport only, I air nothing to Chingola or nothing to Kitwe. So my instructor, a uh, very uh, fine gentleman by the name of Tappy Hughes, he used to always make some sort of plan, uh, load up his vignette, uh, I think you guys call here, drive to um, Indola and give the uh, refueler there or the manager of BP Indola something in a brown envelope to load the vanette full of uh, airgas drums, so at least we could fly back in Chingola, and, and that's what I remember. The club obviously was a massive, massive uh, social outlet in those days. You know, photos on the wall. It was just, it was, it was great growing up in those sort of early aviation days in Zambia in Chingola. Great.
1: I've had the pleasure of of flying in Zambia, and the memories that I have include the countryside and the, the landscape and, and also, strange to say, but a sense of isolation sometimes. How does that work for a pilot?
2: Well, uh, you must remember most of my flying uh, took place uh, prior to GPS. So it was always the Mark I eyeball, if I can use that word. And uh, I was always taught to make a deliberate error in your navigation because the NDBs, uh, even though they were on the chart, they weren't really working, same with the VRRs and you only got the main sort of navigation section between Lusaka and Indola. If you went east or west, there was actually nothing out there. So you'd, you'd, you'd sort of set a heading, a deliberate error, then pick up either road or river and follow that to your destination, which only got worse in winter, because in winter, uh, the guys used to uh, uh, burn the trees to make their charcoal, and there was no rainfall. So you used to get that incredible haze that used to sit at about uh, like level one zero zero, but peering straight through it, you would see nothing—just this smoke haze, just before the rain started. So the trick there was deliberate error: pick up a road, river, or a railway line if you could see it, and follow it to your destination.
0: That
1: gives yeah. you a very good foundation, doesn't it, uh, in, in terms of pilot skills and airmanship?
2: Absolutely, and uh, even to these days, my. Um, uh, towards the end, of the last of my flying, I always used to peer out the window and you know, pick up landmarks. Oh, that's a river. And I mean, one little story going back a good few years ago when I was flying out of Botswana, we were flying a King Air F-90 into Mfui, which was in the Luangwa National Park of Zambia. And I knew that area very well, especially the Luangwa River. I knew that at a particular spot, you'd get an oxbow. And if you're on that heading, in Fui International Airport in those days, it was called. will be right in front of you. And it was a fairly big piece of tar. I forgot the sort of runway length, but it was maybe 2000 meters. You can't miss it. But on this day in the F-90, we're on the descent and I've got the Oxbow Lake right next to me and, I'm, and I cannot see the airfield. It was a beautiful day, just high sort of ultra cumulus crystal clear vision, uh, crystal clear conditions. And I said, no, man, this airfield, where is it? I mean, obviously, NDB's not working, nothing's working. And I looked to the left in between uh, my, uh, the, the fuselage and the left engine, and I was bang right overhead in FUVI International Airport. It just shows you, I think, the airfield was, was lying, in, obviously, in a dark cloud shadow. That's why I didn't see it.
1: It was hiding. Weather yeah. challenges in Africa. What were the weather challenges for a pilot?
2: And I would say visual. I maintain a... Mm. Uh, Descend down to your MSA, if you see nothing, well then go home, or divert to your, you know. That was the, uh, the sort of golden rule of flying around Africa. If you can't see, and especially, you know, when you're young, when you start flying, you always think, oh, I'll just descend a little bit more, or I'll just push it here or push it there, and, and eventually the consequences are not good. But it was drummed into me by my instructor, or Taffy, to MSA, descend, if you see nothing,
1: Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky, soft, and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oceamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over
0: $60. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.
2: Absolutely.
1: Do you still have your first logbook?
2: Yeah, I've got all the logbooks still, and they're in the bookshelf in the flying post.
1: Any memorable flights that get a, a red asterisk in them, That ones that you remember?
2: Well, you know, I always used to put a little star next to weather-related plus, you know, mm-hmm. thunderstorms, turbulence, diversions in my early days, because to me, you know, weather having no radar or not even knowing how to use a radar was always always a sort of concern to me. But um, the, the one flight, uh, not weather-related, I was flying uh, Wilbur Smith from uh, Victoria Falls to Lusaka to Infibi, the famous oh, author. Author, yeah. Yeah, so... But yeah, mainly, my, my sort of little stars were near weather. And as I progressed through aviation into the airline flying, which is more controlled, you're flying with mm. other people, mm. and you can, you can sort of make c- collective des- decisions on the flight deck as to what the weather's doing, where we're going. I find that a lot more manageable.
1: You're part of a team.
2: But, exactly. Exactly.
1: You mentioned going solo at the young age of, what, 15 years and one month. When did you first get paid to fly?
2: I got paid in also 1981. I was flying a Cessna 182 from Chingola for a construction company, and they—I forgot the—I forgot what the number was. You know, Michael, it was in really? Zambian kwachas. But it worked out that uh, my salary equated to, I think, 25 beers per month or something <laughs> like that.
0: <laughs> yeah,
2: so 20 good 25 conversion. beers, Those the X amount of quatches I was getting. So, yeah. you know, yeah. I was living with my grandparents, I was young. So the main focus there was on beer.
1: But it's also, uh, you know, it's a very significant moment when somebody finds that they're now a commercial pilot and that somebody's going to pay you for something you love to do.
2: Absolutely. And again, I always go back to my instructor, Taffy Hughes, who said he was an RAF engineer worked mm. on javelins. And he got a PPL, got his instructor's rating. And he always said, Paolo, if you want to be a commercial pilot, the first thing you do, you don't become a prima donna. And secondly, you always respect the engineers. <laughs> so, I've, uh, <laughs> so I've never forgotten his words. And... Uh, you know, and uh, he brought me up the right way. You know, he didn't, he didn't pull punches. You know, when I, when I was getting a bit gung-ho, he really let me have it at a young age, which was good. You know, uh, I deserved it. And that's why I'm still here today.
1: Let's take it a little bit further then. You found yourself flying some very interesting aircraft, and I'd love to sort of give a, a bit of a name check to some of them, including the C-130.
2: Yes, so the, the, the C-130, we threw the civilian version, the Hercules, uh, I think, L-100. That was for safe air freighters. And that aircraft was just outstanding from landing in really, really basic bush trips in the Sudan to when we were empty to flying up to level 310 and getting in the way of jet traffic. So they forced us down to go, uh, to go below sort of level, I think it was 280. But it was such a versatile aircraft, you know, from flying in the European airspace to uh, the Antarctica, which, we, which I've been to. The, the versatility of that air, aircraft was just. Unbelievable, you know. And again, I, I use the word teamwork because even though I was a co-pilot on the airplane, cockpit crew, flight engineer, loadmaster, we all worked together. We used to load the pallets with the uh, loadmaster, strap the pallets, help engineers change generators, you know, help engineers start, uh, fix the APU. Not because you sit in the front, you put, put your feet up and have tea. We were all part of a team, which made made the communication between us excellent between the between the crews. Maybe you know, we got to know each other on a personal level.
1: The conversations yeah. in, in an aircraft like that with a crew that fly quite a long time, you have periods of silence which are acceptable, but you also have periods of good chat.
2: Well I can't tell you what we spoke about. <laughs> <laughs> I nearly got it out of you. Paul.
1: I almost got it out of you there. No, that wasn't gonna happen.
2: You tried, you're very very good. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, uh, one, one must also steer away you know, because besides the sort of normal cockpit talk, one inevitably will steer towards the company. The mm-hmm. management must do this or the manage- management yeah. should do that, et cetera, et cetera. So, and then, you know, that, then that just brings in a little bit of a negative component onto the flight deck. So one, one has to sort of steer away from management and just talk about the good things and yeah. where we are and what we're flying.
1: What did somebody say once? Leave the whining to the engines.
2: <laughs> that's actually a very good phrase I must remember it.
1: <laughs> well, I'd love to capture if I could too something that you've experienced many times and that is sitting on the flight deck looking out the window sunrise or sunset what's your favourite
2: well sunset going into Johannesburg was in the winter in the summertime was not my favourite because it's just laced with thunderstorms <laughs> but mm. sunrise to me is always was always good because the sunrise you get that, that sort of uh, all the weather's gone and you get that, that distinction between the horizon and uh, you see the earth's shadow sort of slowly depleting and how nature made blue and orange go together mm. and how they just melt, how the colors melt into each other without a, a sort of definition. That to me was always just so mesmerizing. I even used to tell the guys I was supply with, I said, you try and paint that. You try and paint orange and blue together and let them melt into each other. You this. But nature had a wonderful way of doing that. So yeah, sunrises would be my uh, top of my list. I flew for a company called Kalahari Air Services for two years, and my contract came up. And there were more sort of greener pastures in South Africa. So I, um, I lost a very good friend in aviation in 1990. And he was flying for a gentleman called Roger Foster, who now is the owner of South African Airlink. So, I became Roger's uh, second pilot on the King Air B100. That was in 1990. And I you know, flew two and a half years for, in those days, Foster Web Air Charter, obviously with the view of getting bigger and better. You know, and, and while flying for Roger on the King Air, we used to fly from Lanseria to Gabarons for Safair freighters. And I used to fly the aircrew that were doing the crew change from Gabarons to Luanda. So I started chatting to them, and as obviously the hook always had my attention, and I started the network process. And the next thing after two and a half years, I was with Safair Freighters. and then from Safair, short three years chasing money, um, Airlink opened up with all the Jetstream forty ones. I was offered a position, a direct entry on the Jetstream, with uh, I think in those days like three times the money I was getting on Safair. So I jumped at that. And then five years later, SA, I tried to get into SA in 1993. But I think with my, my my sort of language, I couldn't speak Afrikaans, et cetera, et cetera. And then in 96, I was too old because I was 35 and a half. So they eventually hired me when I was even older in 2000. <laughs>
1: How's the Afrikaans? <laughs>
2: Uh, still not good.
1: <laughs> Tell me about the fleet you flew then in uh, in in SAA.
2: Started as a as a boy pilot, or what do they call us, P3s, P4s, on the 747-400, about 16 months. Then from there, I went on to what I've always wanted to fly as a kid, the 737-200, only on there for a short while, about six months, and thereafter to the 737-800 for about six years. And then on to the at last I can die in peace. Um, on to the 747-400 for about three years. Then the 747-400 fleet was, uh, uh, as I were retiring the aircraft. so I moved on to the 340s, 340, 200, 300, 600, and then eventually the 330. And then after doing all, having the Airbus, uh, the Airbus concept in my in my sort of psych. Psyche, I think you say, I, I moved over back to the in the left hand seat, and into the 320s uh, left seat as well. With
1: all of the flying that was going on, I'm, I'm curious about the day you decided to get into the hospitality business in South Africa. Do you, do you remember how, that process? What happened?
2: Yeah, uh, I may have mentioned that, uh, yeah, in 1997, I said this very uh, close friend of mine, Les Marvel, said we should open an aviation bar. And in those days in South Africa, the only sort of pubs that were around were. With the Irish bars, Irish model bars, I should say, sports bars, English, English bars. It wasn't an aviation bar. And I thought that was a great idea. So I took that ball and ran with it. And I took, I think, about seven or eight developers. And then we eventually found the right guy. And we opened up in April 2001. Because while this whole idea was developing, you know, I, I thought, you know, we cannot open an aviation bar in a shopping center. You have to be close to an airfield. You have to see aircraft landing, et cetera, et cetera. That's for Johannesburg. And that's how it all started. So we started uh, on a shoestring in April, the 6th of April 2001. We opened High Flyers, uh, which is still going. When it comes to High Flyers, um, 2005, we managed to procure a whole flight deck from a 747-200 that SA were a busy, um, how can I say, I I can use the word chopping up, it sounds a bit harsh. So we got the whole flight deck and they built us a whole new pub on the premises, the landlords, and installed the 747-200 flight deck, which Boeing have told us, it's the only pub they know in the world with an original 747 uh, classic flight deck, which we've glassed off on the back. There's a glass door you can walk into it, but we keep it under lock and key because it is a museum piece. So that's a, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful central feature of High Flyers.
1: And now you're here in Ireland and there is a place called The Flying Poet, which is collecting memorabilia. And uh, I'm wondering, if, and our listeners can't see, but there might be a glint in your eye that you've got some more plans and what you want to do.
2: Well, the cafe is nice and small. I always want to start something small and just keep it uh, manageable. But... I'm still looking for yeah, like the core of what, what, um, what the Flying Poet is, and it is definitely to, to sort of just promote Irish aviation, especially the history of Irish aviation. Should the Flying Poet really work out well, then another two or three aviation cafes will, be, will just sprout up somewhere. That's more accessible to, to other members of the public, because Ireland really... Ireland's got such a rich, rich aviation history. You know, I was driving around here in December, there's so much history in ireland aviation history which is not really out there Mm. so so through the flying Poet and through other networks in aviation we want to i want to and i'd like to promote irish aviation history that's the sort of the sort of sort of thinking behind it you know
1: i have a funny feeling we'll be talking again paulo no doubt and we wish you all the very best with the flying poet and indeed with your time here in ireland and also Maybe the possibility of seeing you back doing a bit of flying again soon. What do you think?
2: I'm too scared to fly now, Michael.
1: <laughs> <laughs> On your own, what? you mean. You want a crew of two with you.
2: <laughs> yeah, I must get told what to do now, you see. That's, that's why I used to. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have made peace with not flying anymore. And uh, even though I'm not physically flying, I'm still involved in aviation. Mm-hmm. I'm still meeting aviation people. I'm still talking about it. I'm still yeah, involved in aviation. So that's, that's fantastic. You know, it's, it's, for me, it's a... It's another sort of transition in life, if I can use that word.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us on Squawk 7000.
2: Thank you, Michael. It's been an absolute pleasure. Really pleasure. Thank you very much.